this case, what was essentially a postcard, just a little quick note that he was sending to this man Philemon, uh, who, and the occasion of the letter was that he was sending back a former slaves of Philemon, Onesimus, who had probably ripped Philemon off when he left, and so now Onesimus had become saved, and Paul was sending him back, but also encouraging Philemon to handle him like family instead of like an employee. And so, uh, but just, it's just chock full of, of really amazing things. Paul wrote this later in his life. He was in prison in Rome at the time that he wrote this and wrote it to Philemon who most likely um, lived in Colossae. And it was probably about the same time he wrote the letter to the Colossians because the people who Paul says were with him and the people who Paul says say hi to in Colossae were the same people if you compare the beginning and end of the book of Colossians with the beginning and end of Philemon. Um, We know from the book of Colossae that Philemon was uh, a man who had been saved and who was uh, living in Colossae. And so as Paul was sending the letter to the Colossians, he probably tucked this into the packet, just a little note to Philemon. And yet, the way Paul was, especially as you see him get older, if he just said a few things, it was just completely packed with significance. Um, it's one of the advantages of living a long time is that you start to get perspective. And he does, and he just, he nails it in this book in some amazing ways where he really touches on all the truths that Paul wrote on in the 14 books that he wrote. Um, But at the same time, in this one, it was just little encapsulated things. And so it's fun uncovering these treasures, but um, let's just look right into it. Um, He opens Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Not unusual for him to include Timothy because Paul was grooming Timothy to be involved in pastoral leadership. And so he had him there with them and included him in the, in the greeting. To Philemon, we don't know much about Philemon. There are some traditions that said he was very wealthy. Apparently he had a church, a house church meeting in his home. Um, he, he isn't called an elder, deacon, apostle, or any of those things. So probably a layman who perhaps had business interests and things like that was successful enough to at least have owned one slave, which again, back then a slave was more or less like an employee. It was someone who got into debt with you so much that now they were working it off. Um, It was a part of their economy. But Paul calls him our beloved friend and fellow laborer. And, And then he also addresses it to, and it's interesting, A lot of it sounds like Paul's buttering Philemon up, but Paul's really not trying to get anything from Philemon. I think he had a genuine affection for this guy and a great respect for him. And it's important in the church that not everyone has to become a pastor. Um, Paul considered Philemon someone who was a fellow laborer with him because he was involved in in the work of the ministry. It's to be the whole church that does this. In his case... He opened his home for, for a home fellowship. In other cases, there were different things that people were called to do, but Paul saw it all as just being, we're working together, we're serving the Lord together. And then he addresses Aphia, the beloved Aphia, um, most likely Philemon's wife. Uh, it's a female name. And then also Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, Archippus is mentioned over in Colossians chapter 4 as being someone who is involved as a pastor. Most scholars believe that Archippus, because of the way they bunched you know, his wife and Archippus in with Philemon, probably Archippus was the son of Philemon, and he was probably the one who was taking leadership roles 
there in their um, home fellowship. And so he says, grace, over in Colossians 4, he gives some specific instructions to Archippus um, that sound like, well, I'll just read it to you really quick. Um, in Colossians chapter 4 and verse, it's right towards the end, 17, as he's closing off the book, he says, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. He often said similar things to Timothy. And so um, Paul, as always, encouraging those who are young and serving God to pay attention to how they do what they do and, and hanging on to the privilege of being able to um, represent the Lord to the people. And so Paul had a real heart for people who are younger and involved in ministry. And so he does here as well. And, and he says, and to the church in your house. So basically addressing their whole home fellowship. This wasn't a secret thing that he was saying, but it wasn't a general thing to the whole church at Colossae either. It was very personal and very specific to that particular home fellowship um, that, that met at their house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was a very typical greeting for Paul, grace and peace. Paul was all about grace and about the fact that when you begin to understand grace, you begin to experience peace. If you're not feeling peace, you're not understanding grace. And so he lumps them together from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Philemon, I'm praying for you a lot. And here's kind of the context in which his prayer is in these next um, three verses. First of all, he says, hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. I really like that, love and faith. And he said, you have love and faith toward God and you have love and faith toward his people. And, and so... Um, by, by linking love and faith, love that, that care, that, and as we've been studying in 1 John, we realize love for God always turns into love for people. But faith toward God, trusting Him, also is something that carries over into the lives of people. If people see that leaders don't have faith, then they don't have faith. If they see people who they look up to, and this is whether you're a parent or an employer or a friend, someone who others respect in terms of leadership, if they see you freaking out, then they think, oh man, it must be really bad because you know God better than I do and you're falling apart. But at the same time, the confidence and faith that we manifest, it's not toward the circumstances and it's not toward the people, it's toward God. But it turns out being something that really touches people. And so Paul was praying for him and thanking God for the fact that out of your life is flowing forth a love and faith toward God. And that carries over because people see the love that you have and the faith that you have, and it gives them courage and it gives them love. They feel loved, and therefore they want to love. So he just, it, it's really a, a credit to Philemon that the first thing that Paul really wants to say about him is, I see how much you love God, and I see how much you believe in God, and as a result, that is having a profound effect on the people who are around you. Nothing about Philemon teaching a Bible study, because we don't believe that's what he did. But there are a whole lot of ways to make a difference in people's lives. And love and faith are more important than the best Bible study in the world. They really are. Because they say, if, if I love you, it tells you that God loves you. And that's the most powerful and transforming thing that can ever happen in your life, to recognize that. And if you see me believing in God and trusting him, and even in the middle of maybe difficult circumstances, 
I have this confidence that comes from faith, and I'm faithful. I always show up. I, you know, faith is in two aspects. On the one hand, it's about believing something very strongly, but it's also used in terms of being faithful in that you do, people can count on you, and God can count on you. You're going to do what you're supposed to do, and it's that belief that results in consistency. Consistency comes from really believing this stuff. And if you see that in me and you see that I really believe God, then you're going to feel more like, I guess there's nothing to worry about. I guess God really is in control because I'm pretty sure that if there was a reason to freak out, Dave would be, and he's not. <laughs> and that's the opportunity that we all have to, to represent God in this amazing way of, of love and faith. And he goes, I see that in you, Philemon. And then he goes on in verse 6, and he says, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. You ever think about that? The, just that phrase, the sharing of your faith. And like I said earlier, faith rubs off on others. Faith toward God turns into faith that's manifested to people. But faith is something to be shared. Faith is something whereby when one of us is weak, someone else needs to come alongside and be strong and to say, look, maybe you aren't feeling it right now, but let me remind you of who God is and let me share my faith with you. It's not just about going, okay, here's how you become a Christian. It's about in every way that we would rub off on each other by our faithfulness and by our deep belief and commitment to him. You know how it is when you don't feel like doing something and somebody else says, ah, come on, let's go do it. And you go, okay, I'll drag myself. Often we have to play tricks on ourselves in order to get ourselves to be faithful. And I, you know, I do this a lot of times when I don't really feel like going to the gym in the morning. And so then I'll just tell myself, you know what? I think I'll just go and sit in the steam room then take a shower and go home. And when I get there, then I go, I'll go up and just spend 15 minutes on the treadmill. Once I get on the treadmill, I'm feeling a little better once I get going. Also, don't want to see people see me get on the treadmill and get off so quick. So, you know, I, I hang in there and I do it and I'll push a little weight and I'll do it. The next thing I know, I've done a, a good workout, but I have to trick myself into doing it. Well, that's something that we can do for each other just by way of encouragement, just by way of reminding someone, you can do this. And I think that we need to do that more often, to just remind each other. Are you, I mean, I so appreciate it when there are people who just say, are you getting enough rest? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you staying off your foot? Are you, you know, because that's a way that someone when my faith might lack, someone else can help build it up. And I, and I hope that I do that for other people as well. But it's a beautiful concept, sharing of your faith, becoming effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. There are a lot of good things that are in each of us. We're as children. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But sometimes I look at myself and I see what I'm frustrated with, and I can't always see the good things that are inside me. But when someone else comes along and believes in me and, and sees a part of me that, you know, I know, I mean, you can tell when somebody's just faking it, you know, and, and lying to you and telling you things that you're good at that you're really not good at or telling you that, oh, that was the greatest sermon ever when you know it was terrible. Um, but people who can actually look at you with the eyes of faith and the eyes of love and they see things in you that you can't readily see in yourself, that's such, a, that's such a privilege to be able to help people to see things that they can't see. And so Philemon was this kind of a person where he would be able to look at people with the eyes of grace and identify qualities that at this point, maybe they aren't seen in themselves. And Paul's just going, I'm so thankful that you're that kind of a person. 
Perhaps this is why his son wanted to get more involved in ministry. is because he had a dad who encouraged him and told him, you can do this. I believe that you can do it. See, serving God and being involved in ministry, if you really think you should be doing it, you shouldn't be. Everyone who comes to me and says, I want to be a pastor, I pretty much know they're not supposed to be. Because people who are supposed to be pastors are people who don't really want to be. They're people who don't think that they're up for it. Sometimes God will call someone like that and you'll be like kicking and screaming not wanting to do it and God will drag you into it. I've, out of every hundred people I meet who want to be pastors, probably 98 of them shouldn't be. And sorry, but that's just, I've just seen that. If you really, really want to be a pastor, you probably don't know what's involved. And, and yet, at the same time, it's finding those people who really do have a call on their life and pulling them out of their shell and going, you can do this. God has, and, and God has something special for each one of us to do. But it's the sharing of faith that will actually identify specifically those strengths and those capacities that God wants to use in a special way. And it may not be the way that you think it would be, and yet to be able to inspire in others the capacity to use their gifts is a, is a huge, huge privilege. And so sharing your faith, becoming effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. It's not what's in you. It's what's in you by Christ Jesus. And think about that sometime. How many people are you encouraging to step out there and, and, and serve God in some way? How many people do you look at and go, you know what? Sometimes when you share with me, it's like you have a way of putting it together that's really helpful. Or, you know, you have a gift that as soon as you talk to me, I feel better. And things like that. That's, that's what he's talking about. It's this mutual sharing of faith. And then verse 7, for we have great joy and comfort, consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. All this stuff goes together um, as describing the character of Philemon. But wouldn't you like people to say that people's hearts are refreshed by you? Um, how we talk to people, how we treat them, even the attitude that we carry toward them has the capacity to either cause them to be refreshed or cause them to have the life sucked out of them and for them to rot on the vine. And he's just going, you're the kind of guy, Philemon, that when people are with you, they end up feeling like they just got a burst of energy. Um, I know people who do that for me, and I love that. It's a rare quality, to be honest with you, and it's not one that I can just say, yeah, I always have that effect. I hope sometimes, and, I, and people say this, that sometimes I will actually make them feel like a load's been taken off of them, or they feel so much better, they feel so refreshed from talking to me, but it doesn't happen nearly as much as it should. Um, but this is something that we should all pray that God would give us this capacity because no matter what your gifts are, no matter what your calling is in the body, you have the power, just a present falling down over there, you have the power to either refresh people or just rub salt in their wound. And I, for me, I, I want to be a refresher. And Philemon was. And then he goes on and he says, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's about to ask for, you know, some grace towards Onesimus, the slave. But he... But look at the spirit that he has. He goes, I know if I told you what to do, you would do it. I know that if I commanded you, you would be
be in submission to me as your elder, as your pastor. But he goes, you know what? The older I get, the more I realize I don't need to tell people what to do. I'm just, as he says, I'm appealing to you. And I, you know, I think so often when it comes to authority, we get really used to the concept of telling people what to do. And I just don't see that that's how Jesus loves us. I was talking to somebody the other day who was having a big fight with his wife, and I, and I just said simply, just love her like Jesus loves you. Because I'm amazed at how little Jesus lectures me when I'm wrong. I'm amazed how he doesn't just crush me with condemnation. I'm amazed how he doesn't demand that I do things. And he has all power in heaven and in earth. And yet, he wants my heart. And so, he doesn't manipulate me. He doesn't cajole me. He doesn't you know, threaten me. He, do, he, he appeals to me. And Paul, as he was, as he described himself, Paul the aged, and believe me, I'm feeling that. He's just going, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm appealing to you. I'm asking you to consider this. I'm asking you to think about it. I'm asking you to be open to it. See, one thing you learn as you get older, if people do what you just tell them to do because you tell them to do it or you want them to do it, and they do it to please you, um, they'll only do it that one time, maybe with a bad attitude, and it's not likely to create a lasting change in their behavior. But when you explain a situation, your perspective, and you've earned the respect of someone through years of faithfulness to them, then they are interested in what your desires are. And they'll listen to your appeal, but then if they make a decision, it becomes their decision and not yours. I'd say it's one of the biggest mistakes that parents of teenagers make is that they haven't usually figured out that it's too late to have your kids doing things because you say so. You can get away with that bluff when they're younger, but as they get older and they get closer and closer to making their own decisions where you can't do a thing about it, it's so important to move from giving out orders to appealing to them. And to appeal to someone, again, it's the whole idea is that it's appealing. It's something that makes you want to do it. Often when I talk to people who are struggling in their marriages, I, you know, the, usually the way it goes, and I've had it both ways, but typically it's a man who's coming in wanting me to tell his wife that she needs to submit to him and that she doesn't have grounds for divorce, and God says, you do what your husband says. And I say, you know what, without even digging through all that, let me, give, let me cut right to the chase. If you can't make your wife want to live with you, put a fork in it, it's already over. She'll either stay and make you miserable and blame God for it, or she'll end up leaving and then feeling like she's rebelling against God. And the truth is, it is so much easier to be appealing to someone. It's so much easier to appeal to their best nature and for you to do your best to, to be attractive than it is to overpower someone and to win enough arguments that in utter defeat, they resolve themselves to be stuck with you. Is that really what you want? Do you really want people who are just doing what you tell them to do because they feel like they don't have a choice? It should never, ever get to this question of, okay, now what are the legal grounds for divorce? Not if you're doing marriage right. You're giving each other freedom. You're trying to be as appealing as you can be. You're, you're granting them the freedom to make choices that they need to make, and you make it as easy on them as possible to do that. People want to be in that kind of a relationship. You'll never get down to figuring out exactly what the technical grounds are because you know your, your spouse will actually want to be with you. And it's the same way in dealing with anyone. If, if you will appeal and you will act in an appealing way, an attractive way, 
and you give people freedom, they want to do what's right. They may test you and do something that's wrong, but really they want what's best for them. And when they become convinced that you want what's best for them, then it's not going to be about you any longer. It's going to be about, thank you for teaching me what's best for me. And I'm starting to believe that you have my best interests at heart. And when I do what you, what you ask me to do, I find out I really want to do it. That's how relationships, all relationships are supposed to work. And so Paul just gives us an example of it. He goes, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm appealing to you. And I'm old and I'm a prisoner. A <laughs> little bit of manipulation there, maybe. Now, begin, in verses 10 and 11, I love this little section. He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Hear that affection for this runaway slave whom I have begotten well, in my chains. Paul doesn't say you should look on Onesimus as your son. You should take him back. He's setting the stage by saying, here's how I see Onesimus, just so you know. And I'm appealing to you on this basis. He is like a son to me. It's as if he was born from me. There could be nothing higher to be able to, to say than this person is my child. This person I have taken in and if you love me, you'll love them. And, and so to express that, he's appealing on the basis of this affection that he has. Affection is interesting because it's almost always contagious. Remember when you were younger and there'd be somebody who nobody really liked them that much, nobody you know, was wanting to date them or anything, and then all of a sudden somebody very attractive started dating them and it just makes the person more attractive and you start going, oh, they must see something I don't see and the, you know, popularity builds on itself and friendship does the same thing. There are some people who I barely know but I have a very high opinion of them because people who I respect see them as a great friend and that's, that works for me. There must be something really good in a person, even that I don't know, if they are a good friend to other people and other people are a good friend to them. So Paul starts with that affection, but then look at this in verse 11. He says, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. The name Onesimus is a name that means useful or profitable. It's a different Greek word than what's used here, so I'm not sure that verse 11 was a play on words, but he took a, a synonym of the word that is the name for Onesimus, and he's saying, look, there was a time when he wasn't profitable to you. There's a time when he cost you money. Probably Onesimus ripped Philemon off when he left. But he says, I'm telling you, he was unprofitable, but now he's incredibly profitable to me and to you. His value has in, increased greatly. And this is just a, a wonderful picture of being able to, to stand in the gap for someone. And when other people may consider them worthless, and to say, I understand why you think that way because they used to be that way. But I'm telling you, I see a value in this person that maybe other people don't. He goes, and, and think about Onesimus being given a name like useful or profitable. And yet somewhere along the line, he took a bad turn and became a criminal became, first of all, in debt so much that he was a slave, and then he became a criminal and went on the run. If you were his parents, you would be going, what were we thinking when we named him useful? He's completely useless. And yet, see, God saw this all along. 
And no doubt, God perhaps even inspired the naming of Onesimus in order to, in order to foresee that which, that which was coming, that which could be true, that which in fact would be true. Don't give up on someone because they're useless right now. In fact, if at all possible, find the value in other people and transfer that to others and let them know, I'm telling you, this person is more valuable than you think. One of the greatest privileges in life is to be able to debunk notions that people have about someone that they are worthless, that they're to be written off. And to be able to look at someone and see their incredible value, to see what a treasure they are, and then to carry that over to someone who has every good reason to believe them to be worthless and to say, you know what? This has turned out really well. This has turned out to be a blessing. And the one who at one time was worthless um, is now really very, very valuable to me and to you. How many of us were ever really worth much before God really got a hold of us? Had God not gotten a hold of us, where would we be right now? How much value would we really have right now? And so the Lord has come along and he sees value that no one else can see. But when you are his and you're plugged into him and filled with the Spirit, you start seeing value in people. You start seeing people differently because you see them with the eyes of grace. And if, if you believe that God has taken you from being worthless to worth something, which if you don't believe that, I'm not even sure you're a Christian, to be honest with you. Because that's what being a Christian is, realizing you're worthless and letting him make you worth something. But if you've experienced that, then open your eyes and look around and try to find others who are, whose heads are hanging down low and who seem to be really shy or reserved or you know they've curled up in a ball or they've given up or they won't say much or they, because so many voices have convinced them that they are not useful, that they just decide, I guess I don't have any utilitarian value. I guess I don't have any beauty. It's not true. It's never true. But to be able to find that value and challenge people to, to live up to the potential that they have in Jesus and then to be able to communicate that to others, that was Paul. He loved turnaround stories. He was a salvage operation himself and then spent the rest of his life trying to find people that no one wanted and then challenging them to a standard that would elevate their life to a place of, of beauty and glory. That's a whole lot of what our job is for each other, is to find those who are discouraged, the brokenhearted, and to lift them up and let them know it's not over yet. You have value. You have usefulness. Um, you can be profitable. And so uh, then he says, I'm sending him back. That's big. I don't know necessarily that Onesimus offered to go back, but he probably did. I mean, let's face it, somewhere between Italy and Turkey, he could have got away. Um, but I'm sending him back because why? Because it's the right thing to do. Paul had integrity. And even though he looked at the situation and would go, this isn't right for this beautiful brother to be a servant, a slave, yet this is right. I'm sending him back. And he says, I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. He says, I wanted him to stay here. And if him staying here, I probably could have asked you and you would have said, yeah, that's cool. Everything's fine. And it would have been okay. But I wanted Onesimus to go back to you. I wanted you to have the opportunity to deal with him. And 
one of the lessons that I see in this sometimes is that if you're going to move forward, sometimes you have to go back. Sometimes you can't just continue to run from your past. There's some closure that has to happen. It could be as simple as an apology. It could be as simple as just going back and kind of reliving a situation and thinking your way through it and confessing any sin that you might have involved in that, making restitution to someone um, if you've done them wrong, doing everything that you can to, to tie up those loose ends because we, God wants us to move into the future absolutely free. No skeletons in our closet, nothing there that we have to worry that somebody's going to find out. Sometimes moving forward is as simple as just admitting the past, sharing your story with someone, coming to terms with it. Anything that you're scared to death that somebody's going to find out about, best thing I can tell you is get it out there with somebody. Find someone that you can trust and spill your guts to them. Because it's a way of going back to that place and making confession if necessary and restitution if that's called for, but just to go, I don't want to go into the future dragging my past. And so Paul understood this and he figured the best way for Onesimus to move forward was to go backwards. And sometimes we have to do it. Sometimes it's just drop back and punt. Sometimes it's just facing the past. Sometimes it might be getting with somebody and, and sharing. You know, I, I'm not a big fan of digging up every detail of your past and paying somebody, you know, $200 an hour to listen to it. Um, there are times for that. I'm not knocking that at all. It can be beneficial for certain people. Um, some people aren't wired that way, and it would just be excruciating to do that. But, you know, there are times when I'm just talking with someone I trust, and something comes out from my past that I have sat on for 40-some for years, even 50 years, and it comes out just like out of the blue in a conversation, and I realize it actually felt good to say that. It actually felt good to divulge that to someone who I categorically absolutely trust, and I know that they're responding in grace and love. And... Sometimes, you know, it, it may not be that you need to dig into every hurt from your past or go into years of professional therapy, although if God leads you to do that, do it. I'm not knocking that at all. But what I'm saying is at least be open to go, have I left anything in the past? Is there anything off on the side of the tracks? I got on the train without it, and I just need to go back and tie up a couple of loose ends. I need to go face some things with courage so that, I, so that I'm not running from them the rest of my life. I just don't think God wants us to carry baggage. And so whatever it takes to, to deal with that, for Onesimus, it was going back. But he goes on, and you can tell I'm loving this passage. I don't know if I'll finish it tonight. At one point, I thought about doing Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John all in one night, but... This thing got me. So he says, um, but, verse 14, and I love this verse, but without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Paul goes, I don't want you to do anything that you don't want to do. So I'm not setting you up, putting you on the spot. I'm even telling you that he's coming. You can figure out what you're going to do. But I don't want to force you. I don't want to pressure you. I don't want to push you because I don't want you doing anything out of compulsion. And this is exactly the heart of God. It has been from the very beginning. God doesn't want people to do things they don't want to do. He doesn't want to force and threaten people into obedience. Even with commandments like things like sacrifices and the tithe that was required in the Old Testament, God said, I didn't want that if you didn't want to do it. If you can't give cheerfully, don't give at all. If you don't want to sacrifice, 
keep your animals. It means nothing to me if you, you know, do this grudgingly. And in the New Testament, don't give grudgingly or of necessity because God loves a cheerful giver. You don't have to give anything to God. When you realize how he blesses what you do, you'll want to. But if, you, if he hasn't shown you that, and you haven't really figured out what a blessing it is to give, keep your money, keep your time and effort. Don't bother stacking chairs after church. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Don't let anybody push you into doing it. You don't have to do anything. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. It's an insult to God if you do something because you feel pushed into it. It's like if your spouse was kissing you because they felt like they had to, because you really gripe at them if they don't. So you're like, okay, fine, here you go, and uh, go ahead and do what you want. I mean, I don't think that's what people are craving for in a relationship. God isn't either. He, he wants us to be free. And that's why grace is so important, because grace is what sets you free. And if you trust grace, you'll find out that the more you realize you're free and can do anything, the more you will naturally want to do the right things for the right reasons. But doing the right things for the wrong reasons is wrong. You don't just make yourself be good. That won't last, and you'll end up resenting God in the process. So Paul, understanding this, goes, I'm not telling you to do this. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not, you know, making an assumed close on you. I'm simply going, if this is in your heart, if your heart's like mine and, you, you know, you want to do this, then by all means, do it. And I like that. Without your consent, I wanted to do nothing so that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. People who have to be forced to do the right things um, haven't really received the love and grace that God has for them. And sometimes it's your turn to receive. If it's getting really hard to give. Take a break and just really receive. It's hard. It's more blessed to give than receive, probably. It's, it's certainly less awkward and easier to give than to receive. But ultimately, you can't give right until you do receive. And it's something that we all need to learn. For perhaps, and I like that, he's just kind of speculating, perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord he goes, think about it. Maybe God's hand was involved in Onesimus running away and ripping you off. Now that's hard to fathom. But he's going, who knows? You lost a slave and now you're getting back a brother. And, and so often when we try to hang on to what we have, we, we, we stifle it and suffocate it and and it, it can never be what it's really supposed to be. You've all seen people do this in relationships where somebody's super possessive and demanding and manipulative, and pretty soon you start to resent being in a relationship that's so one-sided and one-dimensional and so much like being in prison. But, you know, there's that old, it's not a verse, it was on a poster back in the 60s, but, you know, it said if you... If you love something, set it free. And if it's really yours, it'll end up coming back or something like that. I can't, my favorite one was the one that says, if you love something, set it free. If it doesn't come back, hunt it down and shoot it. But <laughs> that does, that's not what he's talking about. It's the idea of if you will let go of something, it just might come back to you much better. It just might be God's plan to do it. And it's so hard for us to release each other. It's so hard for us to let go and say, do whatever you want because we're afraid that what they want isn't going to be to be with me. And if that's the case, maybe you ought to start trying to be more appealing. But 
his idea here is, look at this plan of God. And it's all come full circle. You lost a slave. Now you've gained a brother who will be a better helper, a better worker, and a better friend to you, to me, to the church, to all of us. Look how this works out. Sometimes you just have to let people go and let go of things and possessions and things like that. Some people are desperately with white knuckles hanging onto their house just trying to save it. And, and yet sometimes if you just let it go, you'd find God has something much better for you. Um, there are so many instances of that in our lives. Don't hang on to anything except God. And let everything else go. And he's going to take care of you. And things that you release, you'll be amazed at what they turn into when they return in the flesh and in the Lord. And then he goes on, I'll get through the rest of this here. Um, Verse 17, if then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. How I love this. Paul is identifying the word partner there is the word koinos from which we get the word koinonia or fellowship to have in common. And Paul is identifying himself with Onesimus. And he's saying, I am connected to him. I'm in fellowship with him. And if he owes you anything, charge me. Put it to my account, I'll take care of it. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? When he he took our sins on himself, when he, as Isaiah said, we went astray and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That atoning work of Jesus Christ, whereby he says, put it to my account. And Paul talks about this and uses the same the same words about charging to the account over in Romans chapter 5 about how that which we did was charged to the account of Jesus. But notice that Paul does this, and I think this is something we can learn from too, is are we willing to stick up for someone enough to say, put it on my account. If they've hurt you, if they've offended you, I want to take that on myself. I'll take care of it. What? What do you need me to do? What can I do to make this up to you? And so often in pride, people go, oh, I don't want it from you. I want it from him. No, I want to do this. I really do. Can I take this debt? Can I take this burden? And every time we take a chance on someone in life, it's kind of what we're doing. Every time we lay our life on the line, every time we put our reputation on the line, Anytime we go to bat for someone else, we are imitating our Lord Jesus Christ. And are we secure enough to do that? Am I willing to take a chance on someone? Only if the Lord leads and if he calls, I won't take a chance on just anyone. But when you see someone and you know that they are worthy of redemption, you know that they are someone who needs a chance. Will you throw yourself in front of the bus for them? Will you put your reputation on the line in order to stick up for them? It's one of the things that I see Pastor Chuck do all the time, and he gets burned a lot by it. Because Chuck sees the underdog, and he just wants to defend them. And a lot of underdogs end up biting him. But it's who Chuck is. It's who he's been as long as I've known him that... If, if everyone was against me, I know that I could count on him sticking up for me. And you know, I haven't had to be in that position very many times, and the last thing I'd want to do is to put him in that position. But the truth is, he's just that kind of a person that I know for a fact that if I hadn't talked to him in five years and all of a sudden everyone was against me, I know he'd be in my corner and he would take the blows right along with me. And and I want to be that kind of person because that's what Jesus did for us and that's what we're supposed to do for each other. It makes 
difficulty so much easier if we will share in that koinonia, in that fellowship. If every once in a while we just stand up and go, you know what? If you're attacking them, you're attacking me. It's as simple as that. And that's what Paul's doing here. And, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. And then he says in verse 20, yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. He's going, yeah, I want to hear about this. You can make me feel refreshed. And then he says, having confidence in your obedience. That's great. The kind of friendship that they had was that Paul goes, I know you're going to do the right thing. I trust you. I know you're going to do this. I'm not freaking out and begging you to do it. I'm not threatening you or anything else. Because I know when you pray about it and you look at it, I know you will do the right thing. There's nothing worse than being linked to someone who you're not sure if they will do the right thing. That if you try to do the right thing, they could just you know, bail on you or something because you're doing what's right and they don't want you to do what's right. But here it's like, no, I know. <laughs> I trust you. I have complete confidence in you. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. You'll even take it beyond what I've said. And then he says, but meanwhile also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Paul's still watching the horizon. He's in prison in Rome. He'll never get out, but he's still going, man, I love Colossae, so keep the, keep the light on for me, like Motel 6. And uh, so again, it's this close friendship that he has whereby he could, he could ask that. And then finally, just the greetings. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark. This is Mark, John Mark, the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark, Barnabas's nephew. Aristarchus, a pastor. Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. All these guys were with him there, and they're all mentioned in a little more detail in Colossians 4. But he goes, they all said to tell you hi. No doubt all these guys had been to Colossae and and new Philemon. And then again, closing where he started, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. What an amazing, amazing book. I think everything that you need to know as a Christian is in that little chapter. I think everything Paul ever taught is found between the lines in this little book of Philemon. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for Paul. We love that guy. His heart. I mean, God, we see your heart because your word reveals it and Jesus demonstrated it. But Jesus was only here for a while and he often kept to himself and the guys who were with him didn't really get him at the time. And we're so thankful that you, by your spirit, chose to work in this guy, Paul, so that in so many different contexts and relationships, we see what a healthy Christian life looks like. We see what love and grace look like as they are lived out and fleshed out. And we're so thankful for his example. And for this little letter that could have just been lost in the shuffle, and yet here it is all these years later, and we're looking at it and just going, oh man, that's exactly what, what I need in my life. That's exactly who I want to be when I grow up. So thank you for preserving your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.